0: You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. This is the 40th episode of The Revealer Podcast. I'd personally like to thank you for listening. We value everyone who listens, and we're thrilled by how many of you there are. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome. We encourage you to check out our earlier episodes. We've covered quite the range of topics from things like religion in the CIA and white Christian nationalism in the FBI, to faith-based prisons, Jewish summer camps, and American converts to the Russian Orthodox Church. This episode, our 40th, is connected to and a teaser of sorts for The Revealer's upcoming special issue on religion and reproductive rights that we're publishing on October 4th at therevealer.org. Each year, we dedicate one of the revealers' monthly issues to a topic of significant importance. Last year, our special issue was on trans lives and religion. Other special issues have been on religion and sex abuse and religion and the climate crisis. This year, our special issue features a range of articles on religion and reproductive rights. We have an article on religious leaders who created and supported abortion clinics. An article on connections between pro-life politics and environmental politics. Another on Catholic women who call themselves feminists, even though they object to contraception and abortion. One on how Jewish Americans are using religious freedom cases as a strategy to argue for legal abortion. Abortion access. Another on why conservative right-wing Hindus tend to support legalized abortion. One on connections between religion and race, in debates over contraception, and more. You can find all of these articles in our special issue on religion and reproductive rights that we're publishing on October 4th at therevealer.org. For this episode, we're talking to two authors from the special issue to give you a sense of what the issue offers. One has done extensive research on religious leaders who have supported abortion access for decades. The other has done substantial research on, and among, pro-life evangelicals, and has made connections between their positions on abortion and what they think about climate change. I'm thrilled to chat with them both now. I'm very excited to welcome our first guest, Dr. Gillian Frank. He is an accomplished historian who has written for several popular publications, including The Washington Post, Time, Slate, and Jezebel. He is the author of the forthcoming book from the University of North Carolina Press, tentatively titled A Sacred Choice, Liberal Religion and the Struggle for Reproductive Rights Before Roe v. Wade. In addition to his article in The Revealer's upcoming special issue, he is also the author of the popular Revealer article, For We were strangers, trans refugees, and moral panics. I'm also very excited to announce that he is joining The Revealer in 2024 with a regular column on issues of gender, sexuality, and religion. Welcome, Gil. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today?
1: Hi, Brad. I'm so glad to be with you today. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Great, of course. So it's probably fair to say that many people today think of religion or religious people as one of the greatest obstacles to abortion access. But as our listeners can learn from your work, that isn't the entire picture. And you open your article in the Revealer's special issue with a great line that gets at this. You write, quote, What if we looked at faith as the cornerstone of the abortion clinic, rather than the rock hurled through its windows? So before we talk about some of the specifics of your article, what broadly do you think more of us should know about religion and its place in connection to abortion access and reproductive health services? What would you say looking at religion or faith as the cornerstone of the abortion clinic helps us understand? The story that religious conservatives would have us believe is a political story that would see
1: faith and reproductive freedom as countervailing forces. Hmm. But if we look at the histories of faith and reproductive freedom, we will see that it is an intra and interfaith debate, that because the United States is a multi-faith country, And because there have been ongoing battles about reproductive freedom and reproductive access, the most accurate way to see these struggles over religious and reproductive freedom is just that. Multiple religious forces debating in public and private over how to regulate Hmm. reproductive health care and reproductive freedom. Let me give a few concrete examples. We're speaking on air of Rosh Hashanah, the first night of Rosh Hashanah. And if we zoom back to 1930... What we will see at synagogues across the country, if we had a time machine, would be rabbis and religious leaders reading a statement calling for access to contraceptions and a striking down of laws preventing the free dissemination of information about contraceptives. Hmm. Why are they doing that? They wanted to advocate for a right to plan families, and they said it was a cornerstone of Jewish faith. Now, they were not the doing this back in the 1930s, you could find Unitarians, you can find other mainline Protestant denominations, all arguing for reproductive freedom as religious freedom. Which is to say, if we begin with this anecdote from over 90 years ago, what does it tell us? It tells us that at the center of struggles for reproductive choice, reproductive freedom, and ability to access contraceptives, and then later on abortion... Religious folks had a lot to say about making choice. And the title of my book, which is called A Sacred Choice, the original title was Making Choice Sacred. Hmm. And religious leaders actively fought for a recognition of the moral agency of first married couples. And then they honed in and said, women in general are moral agents and should have a right to choose, should have the responsibility to do so. And so when we begin to hone in on these stories. We can see them on the struggles for not just contraceptive access or abortion rights, but to create the material conditions to make that possible. What did this look like in the past? You would have contraceptive clinics in the basements of Unitarian churches. Hmm. You would see religious people and religious organizations literally giving the seed money to create abortion clinics before and after Roe.
2: Hmm. One of the
1: biggest abortion clinics in the United States pre-Roe was a place called Center for Reproductive and Sexual Health, CRASH, also known as the Women's Clinic. And that was in New York City. That was literally the biggest abortion clinic in the world from 1970 to 1973. Helped seated with religious organizations and religious funds. And that story gets replicated across the United States. You can see it in Florida, you can see it in Milwaukee, you can see it in Rhode Island, you can see it in so many states where religious institutions Religious people, quite literally, create the funds and the resources, like human resources necessary, to make clinics
0: possible. That's really helpful and fascinating. Your article in the special issue, really focuses then on one particular religious leader story to make many of the points you were just describing, and that's Reverend Eleanor Yo. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about Reverend Eleanor Yo and her work to help people get abortions, and how did she see that work as central to her life as a Christian pastor?
1: Absolutely. So Reverend Yo's story is representative of a lot of stories that I uncover in my book, A Sacred Choice. And part of Reverend Yo's trajectory is she was a campus chaplain. She was a campus minister. She was unusual in the sense that she was a woman and, and had a religious education, was admitted to divinity school at a time where um, the statistics for admitting women and ordaining them were very low. But by the mid-20th century, this was happening with greater and greater frequency And post um, 1967, the numbers are steadily climbing so much so that we see a transformation of divinity schools and the folks that are uh, going there, Uh, a lot more women are getting admitted. But in the period that I'm studying, they represent, I think, only 1% of all folks who are ordained were women. But the organization I study, which is called the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion, something like 12 to 15% of their membership were women. Hmm. Now, What is Reverend Yeo's story? She goes and she starts working on campuses in the early 1960s. And this is at the moment of what we would call the second sexual revolution. And at that time, as with some uh, on campuses across the United States, women are having premarital sex, marital Mm -hmm. sex. But what they're having is unwanted or unintended pregnancies. And many of them want ways to terminate them. And so, like so many campus chaplains, like so many ministers and rabbis across the United States and Canada, couples are coming to their offices and saying, please, I don't want to have this child at this time. Can you help me? And so Reverend Yo, like so many others, at first says, what do I do? How do I find people the help that they want? Hmm. This story is getting replicated all across the United States. And I've uh, interviewed for this particular book over 150 ministers and rabbis, and they tell similar durations. At first, I didn't know what to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Then they start to find fellow co-religionists who do know what to do, who are family organizations to help women seek abortions. And at first, it's a very covert, very scary affair. I have people will say things like, you know, I started hearing these stories from my congregants, um, about women having to go seek illegal abortions, getting blindfolded, standing on street corners for pickups so that they couldn't identify the people operating on them, hmm. all for purposes of protecting these illegal operations. And many of these women had really shoddy procedures or they'd have to travel out of the country. Hmm. And so a lot of religious folks start to get active in the mid to late 60s to create what are basically abortion referral services. And they're doing this in response to a real public health care crisis. The statistics at the time suggest that tens of thousands of women, if not hundreds of thousands of women each year are getting illegal abortions. Hmm. And the clergy are hearing stories about the mutilations, about the financial exploitation, about the sexual exploitation that often accompanies seeking out illegal procedures. Say This is unethical. It is unethical to make sex to be such a fearful experience, to make unwanted pregnancy to be so dangerous and try to create material resources to transform it. Part of what these folks do is they band together in small towns and cities across the United States under this umbrella called the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion. And they have a couple of premises. The first premise is that a pregnancy up until a certain point is not a human being. It is a potential life.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It is not a fetus is not in A fetus is not a human. Abortion is not murder. What we're talking about is potential life. And because of that, it is morally justifiable to privilege the needs, the desires, the well-being of the already born, already existing woman. And so that's cobbling together Jewish theology and mainline Protestant theology. Jewish theology is much more um, on this issue is much more established by this point. Protestant theology is much more in formation, but it is rapidly crystallizing at Hmm. this time. But there is a consensus that the onus is to privilege the already born and the, the physical and mental health and spiritual health of women. And there's an idea that it is far better to bring wanted children into the world and to be able to see to their spiritual and moral development of the wanted child than to bring in sort of fear and anguish, unwanted children, into difficult circumstances. That's the idea behind these movements. But the other idea was, these clergy were very much committed to challenging unjust laws. They'd been doing so through civil disobedience in the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement. Challenging laws was part and parcel of what they were doing. And so Eleanor Yoa, who is the centerpiece of my story, joins a Milwaukee branch of the clergy consultation service, um, which was founded in New York city in 1967 was the original branch uh, and then rapidly spread across the United States and Canada over the next six years. Now, Reverend Yo had a problem in order to join this group. She needed to be an ordained minister at mm. that time. She had all of her religious education. She was a uh, campus uh, chaplain, but didn't require ordination formally in a church. Now, why did they have to be ordained? Part of what this group was doing was breaking the law. that And part of the law stated in many places, this was a derivation of 19th century and early 20th century Comstock laws, which made offering information about abortion. Uh-huh. And so how do you protect speech? And their theory was, well, if it is religious speech, if it is what was called Pastor penitent relationships, it becomes privileged. It becomes legal protected. And so Reverend Yeo becomes a minister. She gets ordained in the United Church of Christ in order to counsel women within the clergy consultation service. Now, Eleanor Yeo is so good at what she does, which is to say, being an organizer, being a counselor, that she quickly becomes a secretary of the organization there and helps basically do a number of activities, including abortion counseling, which typically involved offering women options. So at the center of this theology of reproductive freedom that the CCS advocates is not being prescriptive, but exploring choices with the women who come in. Have you considered keeping the child? Have you considered adoption? Mm -hmm. Have you considered abortion? What are your feelings about each Oh, you want an abortion? Okay, let's make that possible. So in 1970, when she's doing this, New York State has just legalized abortion. They don't have a residency requirement. And so women from Wisconsin, as with women from across the continent, are traveling to New York State for abortions. And they're going to a clergy-run clinic that I mentioned before in New York City. And they're going by the thousands. By 1972, There's a series of legal challenges in Wisconsin that make it much more possible to get abortions locally, especially in the first trimester. And so she's helping women navigate the bureaucracies of hospitals and clinics. And that's not a small thing. The bureaucracies were daunting. Oftentimes, staff were quite rude to abortion seekers. And they are viewing these women as already morally suspect and somehow engaging in an unsavory activity, they being many hospital staff. Hmm. Now, that's not to say that there aren't physicians and nurses and counselors at these places that are allies, but there are enough people there that the process is often financially prohibitive and daunting enough. And so part of what they're doing is a form of pastoral care to help abortion seekers just understand, what do I have to do in advance? What do I do when I get there? How do I care for myself after? And so within a year, Roe v. Wade gets passed. And abortion becomes not only legal, but it becomes possible to create local clinics. One such clinic, after Roe, invites Reverend Yeo, who continues to have her name listed in campus newspapers, as a chaplain, as a resource in order to help women find these clinics, pregnant need help, contact Reverend Yeo. And they list in these advertisements, not only her campus office, but her home phone number. Now, when I was corresponding with her son recently, her son said, we would often pick up the phones and speak with the people and then put them on with our mom. But we, were, we knew that we would have to be on duty and be very polite and basically act as secretaries for their mother. Um, and so this was a family affair. Then this uh, clinic invites Reverend Yeo to be a counselor there and to be on their staff as an administrator. And she soon becomes the director of this clinic, this abortion clinic. And she does that until the late 1980s. Now, part of what I trace in this article, and again, I want to take a step back and say that Reverend Yeo's journey here is typical,
2: so hmm. mm-hmm. far
1: as that across the country, clergy who had been active in the clergy consultation service on abortion are transitioning after Roe to building clinics of their own. And they're doing this precisely because what a number of these religious reproductive rights activists have seen is that if left in the hands of for-profit medical services, abortion will remain inaccessible for most people. If left in the hands of folks who see it as a sort of simple medical transaction, the sort of spiritual and also pastoral care of helping folks access a for a procedure that for them can be emotionally and deeply meaningful, if not fraught, um, without adequate support and counseling, can feel like a deeply alienated and scary experience. And so, many of these clergy are trying to create the emotional, and economic, and medical resources so they're not just local and available, but they are compassionate. And this story plays out in Texas, it plays out in Wisconsin, where Reverend Yo is, it plays out in Iowa, it plays out in Rhode Island, we see religious folks um, who are in the clergy consultation service and who have years of experience in abortion counseling and referral and provision, become architects for these clinics, or on the advisory boards, or help quite literally in the years after Roe, to make choice which is already legally possible, materially possible. So her story is very typical of a national trend. And what she does in the day to day of the clinic is she imports the kind of counseling that had been perfected, uh, or at least practiced by the clergy consultation service on abortion, which is options counseling, into the framework of the clinic. And she continues to supervise the day to day activities. Part of what happens is she, as a as a minister and as someone deeply committed to making reproductive health care widely accessible, begins to encounter in ways that are much more aggressive, much more pronounced anti-abortion forces, which certainly existed before Roe, often led by Catholics. But her life at this moment marks the transformations that are Characterizing the experiences of abortion providers across the country, an encounter with hostile religious anti abortion forces who become increasingly visible, increasingly loud, and increasingly violent. And so, what I share in the article in the second half is her experience as a person of faith, encountering and being quite literally terrorized hmm. by Catholic and evangelical anti abortion
0: forces. Thank you. And so I, I, your article is such a great um, viewpoint into this world that I think, going back to our first question, many people just don't know or even imagine because they, they know more of the latter of what you just described of of, of conservative religious people who are so... Um, committed to their opposition to abortion. So for my last question for you today, overall, what lessons do you take from Reverend Eleanor Yo's story that you think are important for us uh, in the present moment as we face struggles for abortion access and comprehensive reproductive health care?
1: I think there are a few lessons. One of them is that devotion, faith, religion, Sometimes we only recognize it when it is loud and visible and the bullhorn outside of the clinic. But I think Reverend Yeo's story and the story of many abortion providers to this day is a story of quiet day-to-day activism, the daily grind,
2: Hmm. the
1: faith that gets you out of bed in the morning to put on your shoes, to make your appearance look presentable and then to plod on despite adversity. Hers was a quiet devotion, and quiet faith. It was a faith that sustained her despite, quite literally, the terrorism of the anti-abortion movement that saw her get personally, like, physically attacked, her husband having also being assaulted and um, having a permanent injury as a result of anti-abortion terrorists. I think her story reminds us of faith as quiet and persistent. I also think that her story reminds us of the human sacrifice, like quite literally the sacrifices she and her family had to make in order to make these services accessible. And in the sort of very human experience of people showing up at her house and protesting outside of her on her front lawn, we see the ways in which Folks who offer abortion health care do so at great risk, hmm. and do so because of their commitment to very specific ideals. For her, it was believing in not just the moral agency of pregnant people, but believing profoundly that without making those services available, she would say, in her words, their basic equality was being compromised and denied. Hmm. And so for her, it was a matter of faith, an article of faith to act in service of others. And she devoted uh, you know, de- uh, close to 20 years of her life in these services before other opportunities presented themselves in life circumstances transitioned her into other forms of activism. Hmm. But in this, I would say she was typical of many people of faith still to this day who see that reproductive freedom and religious freedom are mutually expressive and constitute. Mm.
0: That's great. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for your very important work on this topic. Listeners can find even more in Gill's excellent Revealer article, The Cross and the Clinic, out October 4th at therevealer.org. I'm delighted to welcome our second guest, Dr. Sophie Bjork-James. She is an assistant professor of anthropology at Vanderbilt University. She's the author of the book, The Divine Institution, White Evangelicalism's Politics of the Family. Her work has been featured on the NBC Nightly News, NPR's All Things Considered, and in the New York Times. Her article in The Revealer's upcoming special issue explores connections between white evangelicals' pro-life politics and their attitudes about climate change. Hi, Sophie, it's great to chat with you. How are you doing today?
2: Thank you so much for having me, I'm happy to be here.
0: Great, so one thing that your article touches on that I'm sure our listeners will appreciate is that evangelical Protestants were not always opposed to abortion Or we could say they weren't always opposed to abortion being legal. So how did evangelicals, especially white evangelicals, go from mainly being fine with the Roe v. Wade decision to becoming major opponents to legal abortion access?
2: That is such a great place to start. So up through the late 1970s, abortion was really understood in the United States as a Catholic issue. It was associated solely with Catholics. and. It's important to remember there's a lot of rifts between Catholics and Protestants um, throughout US history, and they're seen as very different. And abortion was seen as a Catholic issue. Um, so, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest denomination of evangelicalism, um, through the 1970s maintained a pro-choice stance in that they saw abortion as a, a right for women to hmm. make those decisions. Um, So what happened is really the formation of a national religious right, a national Christian right. And that emerges in really it's a pro-segregation campaign Hmm. where, you know, after Brown v. Board of Education was decided to formally end desegregation of public schools in the United States, these segregation academies formed all across the South. They were typically conservative and Christian, um, but were really designed to provide all-white schools hmm. for white people in the South to send their children to, um, primarily in the South. So it was really in the late 1970s where President Carter, the first evangelical to be voted uh, in as president, is you know starts to really be aggressive about going after these segregation academies to really try to expand like true anti-segregation measures. Hmm. And Opposition to that is really what formed the first national religious right organizations, kind hmm. of calling for school choice, school freedom, uh, and they were very successful in really winning that fight. And then getting uh, Reagan elected in 1980, and the Moral Majority, the first national religious right organization, forms out of those exact same groups. I mean, hmm. we can specific leaders that ran these, you know. Uh, school freedom or like Christian Christian school campaigns, like went directly to work for the moral majority. Often they ended up going and working for the Reagan administration. So once the, this national Christian right is established, they quickly start to define an agenda that's rooted in Christian nationalism. You know, it's very pro-American, anti-communist, pro-U.S. military. And abortion becomes one of those issues that's associated with liberalism. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And anti-abortion becomes a, a kind of differentiation between... This Christian nationalist view and what they see as secular humanism, but it's not the main thing. Even at the, you know at the formation of the of the Christian right, they're focused on communism. They're focused on liberalism. They're focused on what they call the homosexual agenda and imposing civil rights for sexual minorities. But the abortion becomes kind of one of the issues that defines this Christian nationalist view, uh, and so what we see today is the kind of broadening and expansion of that viewpoint so that it's really come to define white evangelicalism and what i'm doing in my article is showing how opposing abortion can be really successful in kind of justifying a broader like political agenda that is extremely violent violent towards environment. You know, it often um, supports uh, economic policies that increase uh, poverty, increase food insecurity. And, you know, I live in the state of Tennessee, where we now have a complete abortion ban. And it's in this kind of ironic twist, supporting abortion bans actually makes pregnancy much more dangerous. You know, so there's all these ways that the Christian nationalist agenda, uh, you know, increases many different forms of structural violence, yet because of this focus on abortion, it allows for people who support that agenda to say that what they're doing is defending Mm. the voiceless, right? They're defending the fetus, which they see as a social justice issue, but it allows for I think very clearly a pivot away from kind of other responsibilities from really the economic system they support that is the climate crisis is, you know, leading to what people say is the possible end of organized human existence, right? Not just organized human existence, but, you know, any, anywhere we look in the world right now, we're experiencing, you know, ecological crises that are, you know, causing mass extinctions and those extinctions and that ecological havoc is starting to really impact even human life. Right? But I think what this you kind know, of Christian nationalists, agenda does is it allows for a kind of pivot away from these broader problems and harms by saying, well, what we care about is the fetus, and that's the most important issue.
0: Right. Right. So I think that's something that's so fascinating about your work and your revealer article. So I'm I want to ask a bit about how that pivot as you describe it happens. So in the article, you connect Uh, this pro-life anti-abortion politics and environmental politics. So how are you seeing opposition to abortion access and opposition to addressing the climate crisis as connected?
2: Yeah. So on the one hand, they seem like not connected um, issues. Um, I think for me, having studied white evangelicalism for 15 years now, you know, there's, a very clear connection in that white evangelicals are, on the one hand, the largest voting bloc in the United States. They're the largest group of climate deniers in the United States. Even as every year, the evidence of the climate crisis increases, the increase in concern is Mm -hmm. even amongst Republicans that white evangelicals maintain the largest group that's denying there's anything happening. Because they really are the base of the Republican Party, white evangelicals have an oversized um, impact on climate policy globally because they help shape politics of denial that then the rest of the world uses to not do more. And what they say is that you know white evangelicalism is the moral party because they oppose abortion. I actually think we can see in many ways that opposing abortion and denying ecological responsibility are completely linked. I start my article talking about, you know, a variety of politicians that will be against or kind of mock um, endangered species protection by saying, you know, oh, well, the same people who wanna protect species are for abortion access but i think it's very clear that we can see in many different instances the way that this pivots you know any kind of conversation away from ecological harm to well let's talk about like the biggest harm which is abortion that has tremendously negative ecological impacts right
0: as you mentioned you've spent many years not only studying white evangelicals but spending time with them talking to them For our listeners who want people to have greater access to abortion and reproductive health services broadly, what do you most want people to know or to consider at this time?
2: One thing that I hear a lot about from pro-choice advocates is they'll say, you know, this isn't really about abortion. This is about power. And this is about control of women. And I think in some ways for evangelicals, they would not understand that framing. On the one hand, the kind of evangelical worldview is an one hundred percent patriarchal worldview in that what they call male headship is the kind of the definition of evangelical life in that it has to be heterosexual. It's based on men leading and women following every, I mean, virtually every evangelical church has only male pastors, you know, right now you know, churches are losing establishment with evangelical denominations if they, you know, ordain women. Uh, So male headship is incredibly central and reproduction is seen as, you know, only should happen within the confines of a heterosexual marriage. And so it's very convenient that opposing abortion has the effect of policing women and women's reproduction and kind of limiting it to the households, right? But I also think that for evangelicals, I mean, this really started with Jerry Falwell talking about aborted fetuses as like really kind of animating them and talking about, Mm. you know, like the abortion holocaust and, you know, people say things like, you know, a third of your generation has been murdered. And so it's really understood as a social justice issue for many evangelicals. So it's, important to note is that this view of the fetus from conception as a fully fledged like living being is very new up until quite recently when one was pregnant, what could not be determined until what we call quickening. So it's like when someone can stick a hand on someone's belly and feel a kick, you know, someone might start stop menstruating and no one, they had no idea why. (laughs) And abortion before quickening was not even, it wasn't even a concept. Someone might have stopped menstruation, but there was no way to tell that someone was pregnant. And so I think what's happened in, the last 40 years with white eye evangelicalism along with different technologies that allow for early detection of pregnancy, of viewing the fetus, and like those images of being able to imagine fetuses as outside of, you know, a woman's body or outside someone mm-hmm. with a uterus's body. Allow for this construction, or cons- I guess conception is a good word here, of cons- to conceive of fetuses as their own group, right as a, as a group that is experiencing oppression is how they would they would see that. Um, and I, so I think it's it's also about controlling women's bodies, but within a very specific ethical order for evangelicalism.
0: Fascinating. Well, thank you for that and for the important history and connections that you make and for all of your important work. Listeners can find more in Sophie's Revealer article, To Be Pro Life in an Age of Extinction, out October 4th at therevealer.org. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank both of our guests, Dr. Gillian Frank and Dr. Sophie Bjork James. You can find their articles and several others in the Revealer's special issue on religion and reproductive rights, available October 4th at TheRevealer.org. I'm Brett Crutch, I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be joined by an ethicist to discuss sexual ethics in today's world. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.